Hello, I'm Ian Wielden, a senior lecturer at Newcastle University and host of the Cultural Peeps podcast. Today's guest is Theo Platt, the Chief Operating Officer at Gloucester Cathedral. In this episode, Theo and I talk about what it's like to work in a cathedral setting, juggling the different users, tourists, worshippers, learning users and communities, which is fascinating to hear about and an area of heritage that's completely new to me. We also talk about Theo's previous roles, starting with the economic development agency One Northeast, and also his role at the Harris Museum and Art Gallery in Preston, where he worked as a fundraising and business development assistant. Theo then relocated to Gloucester to take up the role as development and communications manager at the cathedral, which led to 12 years and counting with the organisation. This podcast was recorded remotely over Zoom in May 2023 and is an edited version of a longer conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe through whatever podcast app or website you use so that you can receive future episodes. And as ever, if you have any questions or queries, you can message me through Twitter or Instagram using the handle at Cultural Peeps. Thanks to Theo for taking the time to talk to me about his career path. I really enjoyed chatting and I hope you enjoy listening to the episode. So thanks for joining me today, Theo. If we could just start off by hearing a little bit about who you are and what you do. Thank you for having me, Ian. Great to be here. Um, So yeah, I'm Theo, currently um, Acting Chief Operating Officer at Gloucester Cathedral. um, And I've been here for 12 years as of last week, actually, um, which is slightly terrifying. Um, But yeah, so so my my day job is um, really to oversee the operations and business of the cathedral, um, working with our senior executive team to deliver our business plan, and then um, supporting our board, which is called Chapter, um, to ensure that we're fulfilling our compliance, um, that we've got good governance in place, um, and, and yeah, and a whole load of other stuff <laughs> in amongst it. So what does that look and feel like on a day-to-day basis? You know, is there such a thing as an average day for you? Um, that's a good question. And I was thinking about that before we started, actually. Um, and I just had a, a look back at the last few weeks. Um, and we've had some crazy events in a very short period of time, including Holy Week and Easter. We had the installation of our new dean, who is effectively the chair of our board. Um, but also the, the chief executive um, and a senior clergy member. So I work very closely with our, with our dean. And, um, you know, it's a big deal when we have a new dean. Uh, we also had a royal visit as part of the coronation weekend and an international flower show and some filming uh, just in the last few weeks. So, um, and that actually is kind of typical. Um, there's always a lot going on. And we're very lucky here to have such a, a great team of staff and volunteers who, to keep the show on the road um, because all of that stuff goes on around the kind of day-to-day pattern of worship. We're obviously a big heritage destination, welcoming visitors from all over. Um, and a business, you know, we've, we've got an enterprise, a cafe, gift shop, amongst looking after the building and our portfolio of property. So it's wide ranging, no day is the same. Um, and that's what's great about working for a cathedral is that it, it keeps you on your toes um, and every day is different. How 
different is it to work in a cathedral than it is in, say, for example, a museum environment? What kind of challenges do you face on an ongoing basis, but I guess also on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, it's a really interesting one um, because, you know, we've had conversations before where I'm always keen to big up cathedrals um, because I think they just have this incredible um, kind of X factor in the sense that they, they are, you know, a heritage site. Um, it, it's a historic building that's been here for a thousand years and we welcome, you know, 400,000 visitors every year. So we, we have collections. So there are lots of similarities between um, a heritage site, a museum, um, but also we have this daily pattern of worship that happens every single day um, and has been going on ever since, well, be- before we were built. Um, you know, there was a monastery here d- dating back to the 7th century. So that kind of spirit of place is, is so integral to who we are. And, and that's what makes us special. If you were to take that away, I think you'd lose what makes cathedrals so unique. But at the same time, it does present lots of challenges when, when you're, you know, you have three services a day, every day. Uh, and in around that, you have to build in everything else. As I've mentioned, that you know, thousands of visitors arriving in big groups or individuals. Um, we also host lots of different events, concerts, filming flower shows, like I mentioned earlier. So there is a constant balance that you need to try and find between all of these different priorities, which, um, you know, everybody's in it together, but there's also friction there at times, as you'd expect, because everybody's trying to do their best uh, in their roles. So it is a constant challenge to find that balance and make sure that everybody is doing what they're um, here to do, but also that the the bigger picture, um, we're all working together towards that greater goal. Are there any unique challenges that come with a building, you know, managing a building like a cathedral? Uh, yes, uh, there, there are lots of unique challenges. I think that that kind of, the balance between conservation and making sure we're looking after the building, but in a way which is fit for 21st century use and the wide variety of activities that we deliver, that, that's a constant challenge. Um, we did a big project a number of years ago to, to get us to the point where we felt we were a world-class visitor destination, incorporating all kinds of things, but access improvements, um, a whole-scale interpretation scheme, which we haven't had before. But the challenge then is that there is constant wear and tear on the building as well. We also have a, a rather large target of net zero by 2030 in probably the least energy-efficient building um, in the country or one of. So so that is a major challenge for us that we're excited about and energised by, but we're not under any illusions that it's going to be easy. We installed solar panels on the roof back in 2016, um, which was a, a really big deal. We were the first kind of ancient cathedral to do that. Um, and it, you know, it was a, it was a real feather in our cap, but I think it was a bit of, um, an element of all the gear, no idea in that, you know, it was this big yeah. statement piece of installation, but actually we've got lots to do, including some of the basics around being carbon neutral, but also in terms of our wider environmental impact and really making sure that we're embedding net zero across a wider piece of work yeah. um, towards sustainability. So yeah, constant challenges. Would you describe the cathedral as dual purpose with having this tourist kind of element and then 
it's other function as a place of worship is or is it much more complex than that i'm guessing that there might be tensions between those two groups yes it's multi-purpose in that those two are absolutely key priorities but but also i mean it, it is a center for learning as well so we we do all kinds of learning and educational activities for example we have a an incredibly talented team of stonemasons um, including three apprentices who are exceptional, who help look after the building. Um, and the benefit to the cathedral is that, yes, we're maintaining the fabric, but also it's about, and forgive the terminology, but it's, it's a bit of a conveyor belt to create a whole new generation of stonemasons who are going to support the wider sector, because our apprentices, we know, will go on um, to do wonderful things that other cathedrals, but, yeah. but also other um, heritage sites and um, historic buildings across the wider heritage sector. So the learning is a core aspect. And as part of that, we have our musicians, we have an incredible cathedral choir, which is kind of the Formula One car of our kind of choirs, but we, we have multiple choirs. So we have a junior choir, a youth choir, etc. And, and that's about maintaining the tradition and heritage of choral music which has been going on here for 500 years or more. And it, you know, it's an integral part of our, our heritage, which supports worship, but we know is, is, is also loved by, by people who aren't necessarily uh, Christian or interested in the faith side, but really love the music and, and what it does and how it makes them feel. Um, so that's another kind of key part of what we do. Along with, uh, I think one thing it would be worth pointing out is that, and you'll know this, that, Cathedrals are often the biggest buildings in their communities, in their cities, um, and and with that becomes, you know, the civic responsibility as well. You know, we are a kind of uh, host for lots of different civic type events too. So there's lots of different activities, but I'd say those are probably the kind of four big ones: visitors, worship, yeah. and learning, and our kind of community work, and then the civic element. They're just managing the timetable of people that want to use that space has got to be fun. Yes, I mean, it's funny you said, I mean, we've got an incredible tool called Artifacts, which lots of different organisations use, but we we could not survive without our diary. Um, And we have a weekly diary meeting. It's a constant um, (laughs) job for our amazing ops team who look after it to fit everything in. And just going back to your point earlier about the challenges, um, one thing that we introduced a few years ago was something called a depth, not breadth model. And and lots of people, you know, do this um, and would call it something else, quality, not quantity, for example. But really it was to get on top of the fact that we were seeing the impact on the building um, was just becoming so great because we were saying yes to everything wanting to be the cathedral that says yes and does all these exciting things, but it was placing a lot of pressure, not just on the the building, but also on teams. And we were starting to see clashes. So we introduced a new model that really focused on doing the stuff we do really well um, and the partner work that we do well that kind of enables that, just to take the pressure off and hopefully (laughs) resolve a few arguments um, that were cropping up. So how do you set the the aims for the organisation? Is that something that's done at, at board level or how, how is that how's that structured, that decision-making process? Yeah, it's a good question. It's, it's kind of bottom-up and top-down. It's a, it's a bit of a, a mix, really. We, we've got a vision um, 
called In Tune With Heaven, In Touch With Daily Life, um, which is our kind of top line vision. Um, and then we have a number of strategic priorities that support that, which were formulated based on a lot of consultation with staff, with volunteers and wider stakeholders. But our senior executive team, which is the kind of um, management team, leadership team, pulled those together and presented them to chapter, which is our board, um, uh, and that then had them signed off. And, and SET's job um, is to um, deliver those priorities and make sure that we're all working towards them. And you mentioned before some of the different roles of um, other colleagues that you've got working with you. How many people work and volunteer at the cathedral? So what's the, the scale of the operation there? So we've got around 55 um, full-time equivalent members of staff, so around 80. Crikey, um, I didn't realise that many. Yeah, I, I, and it, your response there is, is lots of people have the same um, just because you don't necessarily expect. But actually, once you start to think about, well, okay, you, you're looking after a building, you're welcoming visitors, you're doing worship and music, um, you know, you've got a cafe and a gift shop, it, it suddenly all kind of starts to make sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, and we're very lucky to have um, a, an army of volunteers of, of around... 400 plus. Um, it's dropped a bit since the pandemic. It was at about 450, 470, but yeah, over 400. Um, and we couldn't, you know, we couldn't deliver anything without our volunteers. They're so important. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big team. It's huge. And just generating the income that potentially helps to pay for that must be a massive challenge there. I mean, obviously you've talked about cafe and gift shop and um, donations, and I'm, I'm guessing individual bits of fundraising for projects, that, you know, around the building, architectural stuff. That that must be a real challenge. It's huge. Um, just like any charity, and, and particularly in the heritage sector, you know, that we're, we're always strapped for cash. Um, and I think the last three years have been savage for, for everybody. But yeah, it, it is a massive challenge. As you mentioned, our, our, we've got an amazing fundraising and development team who, who do focus on the kind of restricted income items. Um, so at the moment, we're, we're about to launch a, a £3 million campaign to, to refurb and renew our cathedral organ, which is the kind of heartbeat of our kind of music and, and worship life. Um, but alongside that, to, to help sustain wider music uh, and singing um, and choral activities too. And that's on the back of raising over a million quid to, to do a, a large project on the North Nave, which is a conservation project. Um, again, this is, a, this is a kind of double-edged sword. We have a property portfolio as well of 60 properties, all of which are listed, as you'd expect. And that's the kind of Cathedral Close and then Pitt Street behind and some other uh, odds and sods. But that generates a significant amount of um, revenue for us through rents. But because of changes in government regulations around energy efficiency and um, the constant need to maintain, conserve buildings and repurpose them as well, as and when, um, it, you know, it's costly. Yeah. <laughs> so it does generate a, um, a significant income for us, but it, it is also a bit of a liability just because we're constantly having to, to plough money into inefficient buildings which some of which are falling to pieces and it's a big job to keep on top of and how does the relationship work between different cathedrals throughout the country is that i'm assuming that there's lessons that you all learn you're watching different projects to see how they're paving the way for 
finding solutions to potential problems that you're all likely to be facing, if not now, in the future. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. I have to say, it's such an amazing network and community. So there is something called the AEC, which is the Association of English Cathedrals, which is kind of like an um, umbrella organisation, which supports us. Um, it's linked to the church commissioners, so for the Church of England, but it's, it's specifically for um, supporting cathedrals. And through that, we have all kinds of, you know, there are conventions, uh, there are uh, load. there's a whole website with loads of information, policies, um, plans that other cathedrals have, have shared that you can tap into. We've got a WhatsApp group. <laughs> um, and, and there's not just a WhatsApp group for um, COOs, there's one for the development people, the marketing teams, the visitor experience, the building. So there's an amazing community um, and uh, some of the best experiences I've had have been just speaking to colleagues or going to visit another cathedral and to see what they're doing, just to talk about what they're working on. And, and often there's one cathedral that's doing something that's um, seen as best practice or has done something really, really well, and then we'll all want to learn from that cathedral. So, for example, um, Litchfield Cathedral have been great at um, their programming, um, putting on some amazing um, installations, uh, working with artists and events, and um, lots, lots of cathedrals have, have learnt from them. So... So Peter Walker is an artist who was their artist in residence who, who put on lots of different installations but did a, a light show, a Lux Morales light show. And now that, that show is going around lots of different cathedrals because it, it's fantastic, but it's also great for generating revenue, growing audiences. So we like to steal ideas from each other. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, you'll just put something on the WhatsApp group about a problem you're having at that moment in time and instantly you'll get 10 responses saying, oh, have you tried this or thought of this? It's, it's amazing. That's, that's really encouraging, isn't it? There's a, infra, a solid infrastructure there to support you. Definitely. So, and no one's in competition, you know. I think that's, that's the other thing. Um, it, 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 it's that kind of supportive, empathetic, inspiring and empowering network. Uh, it's really good. So you've been there, you think, said almost 12 years? Yeah, yeah. So is this the kind of work that you always wanted to do did you know that you wanted to work in the heritage sector when you were starting to think about careers or is that something that you fell or morphed into as you started to move through the early stages of your career yeah no I, I mean I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do um I, you know I went to Durham Uni and did ancient history just because I was interested in ancient history um and I had no idea what I wanted to do whatsoever it wasn't until you know my I think I was 23 and I went traveling and I basically bummed around for a few years just working doing whatever um, and when I went traveling I, I realized that everywhere I went I was going to museums heritage sites and really in loving them as you do but it, it felt like more than that you know I was really interested in how how they were set up um, what they did how they operated um, and it was my mum actually said, well, have you ever thought about wanting to work in a museum or in that kind of wider heritage sector? And I, I did some work experience at Tully House Museum in Carlisle, which is an excellent museum, uh, for just for two weeks. And then that was when I decided that I wanted to do it and um, uh, moved to Newcastle and just worked for a year. 
unfortunately got a job which was actually quite helpful, which was working. Do you remember um, One North East, the RDA? I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. so I, I just got a temping job there but ended up staying for the year um, and working um, in the secretariat team but looking at all the projects which were coming in and it was helpful from me moving into development later but but all the cultural projects were so fascinating and interesting and then I applied to, to come to Ix as it was um, and uh, yeah I never thought I'd work in a cathedral though I have to say I, I wanted to work in a museum or and I knew I wanted to manage um, I you know I'm not a specialist I'm, a, I'm an all-rounder and a generalist so I knew I wanted to manage and I my aspiration was to, to manage a heritage site that's what I always kind of said but I never thought I'd work in a cathedral um, ever. And when even when I started here, I thought I'd be here for a couple of years, no longer. But so the ancient history that you studied at Durham, where whereabouts did that interest come from? Can you pinpoint that? Is that something that came earlier at school and A levels, or was it you know? And, and were you thinking about what you might be doing with that a little bit later on, or did you just do it because you were enjoying it and it was learning for learning's sake? I think I'd always loved history, you know, and I, I was far more humanities than science and, and maths. Uh, and my sister is um, an art historian uh, and my mum's a historian. So I think it runs in the family. We're interested in history and also growing up in, in Cumbria and, and in, you know, our region in the northeast as well. This, it's so rich um, with amazing history, amazing heritage organisations and sites, museums. So... It's something that I'd always had the opportunity to enjoy and experience growing up because my mum and dad encouraged that. But no, I mean, I, I liked classics at school um, and, and I was OK at it. So it was the obvious next step. I, I wanted to do ancient history, not classics, because I was rubbish at Latin <laughs> and you didn't have to do a language. Um, so it was more just I, I wanted to carry on learning um, and studying because I was interested in it. There's, there's kind of previous there, isn't there, with historians in your family then? So was that a kind of legitimate possible route? You could just kind of carry on studying and it didn't look so scary? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was very lucky. My mum is an incredibly supportive person and really in- encouraged me to do what I loved to do and enjoyed. Uh, and I, I was lucky to have that. And somebody who could, could help as well, you know. Even at Ix with some of my assignments, my mum was, was incredibly helpful. So, um, no, I think it was always encouraged and I was fortunate to, to be able to do that. But I, I think the one thing I would say was that I, I, I didn't really think about careers. And in some ways, I wish I'd thought about that earlier and, and maybe had more opportunities to, to understand about the types of careers that you could move into within the heritage sector or, or the kind of non-profit sector because really I didn't have a clue and I was just doing what I enjoyed doing and it wasn't until X when I really started to, to A, learn about the sector um, and, and the theory is so exceptional um, everything you learn there is brilliant coupled with the, the practical stuff which is excellent as well and then starting to see and meet people who were working in the sector and seeing what they did really opened my eyes, particularly for, for somebody who is a generalist. You know, I knew I was never going to be able to be a curator or, or, or somebody who was into collections care or education because those not, aren't my strong points and I was more interested in a broader kind of brush role. So does that mean that you approached the programme just 
you know, a bit of a sponge. Let's just listen to them, watch everything. Because I think sometimes people come in and then they think, I, di- I do want to be a curator or I want to work with collections. And then they focus on that sometimes at the exclusion of some of the wider opportunities that, that are there. Um, whereas I, I don't think you did. I think you were you were at the forefront of a lot of stuff that year. <laughs> you were kind of always contributing, if I remember correctly, in seminars and practicals. <laughs> and, and you were kind of very hands-on with the stuff. Well, it was, it, it was an amazing experience. I can't speak highly enough um, of it. It was... It was one of the best years of my life, like genuinely, and it, it was so informative. And having the opportunity, the heritage management courses, which is what I did, to just like you say, I, I was like a sponge because um, I wanted to take everything in and just get a really good, solid framework and understanding of the sector as a whole and how it worked and, and what the opportunities might be within it. So I don't think I didn't certainly didn't go in with any prescribed thoughts about well I want to be, you know, a curator, like I said. It, it was more I'd like to think I think I'd like to manage a site of some kind one day. Yeah. So it's quite that's quite a forward thinking aspiration to be kind of focusing on the managerial element. Um no that's true. I I, I don't know. I think that's something that I've always been kind of Interesting. I like that kind of responsibility. Um, and you, you, yeah, sorry. Are you an are you an organizer? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say I, I'm a, a bit of an organizer, but I'm more of a I'm a people person. I I love working collaboratively with others. And right. My my job here really. I mean, we talked about kind of what it is technically before, but but really, it's to enable the amazing people that we have here, who many of whom are specialists. To do what they do best. If I'm doing my job correctly, they're all flourishing. Um, so I'd always felt that, you know, um, whether it was at school playing rugby and um, being vice captain of the rugby team or uh, being a prefect or whatever, like I, I enjoyed that responsibility in supporting others around me. Um, that sounds a bit, I don't know, <laughs> um, conceited, but you know. Well, no, I think that. It serves multiple purpose, doesn't it? Because there's a satisfaction that comes with it. So it, there's a generosity in it, but then that you're also getting something yourself from it, which is a, it's fulfilling multiple purposes, isn't it? Yeah, de- definitely. And I think with my first job after um, I'd finished the Masters, which was as, as business development and fundraising assistant at the amazing Harris Museum and Art Gallery in Preston. Big shout out to the team there. They're amazing. Um, and which was such an incredible experience to, to be able to go into an amazing kind of local museum right at the heart of its community. But that, you know, that was a, a random job in the sense that it was a development and fundraising job, and I, I'd never aspired to go into fundraising. I don't think there's a fundraiser out there who ever aspires to, to found that career. Um, but working development is an amazing learning experience because you're part of everything yeah and you're enabling people in the organization by fundraising yes but the broader development aspect of that um is so important um so i love i love that job and um but i never thought i'll I'll be in the fundraising team in the museum so you you relocated then for the the harris after you'd been living in newcastle yeah, so I moved back to Carlisle, um, which is where I'm from originally, and the job I got was three days a week, 
So I, I commuted from Carlisle to Preston three days a week and then I worked the other two days for my dad actually, who isn't, was, he's now retired, uh, an accountant. So yeah, it was, it was one of those where, as you know, that there aren't that many opportunities, particularly when you're coming straight out of uh, the course or you're early on in your career. So I think it, it felt like a greater one. Um, and ideally it would have been a full-time job in Newcastle. That's what I would have loved to have done. Yeah. But, um, you know, you, you adapt and you go where, where you get the opportunities. So, but I wouldn't change it for the world. It was amazing. And Hilary, who was my, my boss, was, you know, such a great mentor for me. And, and also Debbie, the marketing manager, was, was fantastic. Just the whole organisation was great. And it was at that time when there was quite a lot of funding in the kind of regions, um, particularly in the Northwest, or it felt like there was lots of funding in the Northwest. So there were quite a few people on kind of 18 month, two year contracts doing interesting roles. So there was a lot of energy, um, which was yeah. fab. I mean, that Carl Carlisle to Preston commute, that's, that's quite, a long, <laughs> quite a, long, a long commute. It was the worst. <laughs> Honestly, I remember once we, I got the train back because we got the train every day, had to get up at like half five, whatever. And it was during the World Cup and England were playing and I was desperate to get back so I could get to the pub with my mates and watch the game. And the train broke down and it was literally on fire <laughs> somewhere like over <laughs> Shap or something. And it was just so frustrating. But um, yeah, no, it, you, it wasn't pleasant, but you do what you have to do, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how long were you at Harris for? So it was an 18-month contract and then they extended it, but I was ready to go at that point. And I applied for another job, which, which I was offered, which was just a fundraising job for um, a, a youth zone charity, like a young person's um, community foundation in Carlisle. And it just felt wrong because I didn't want to go down a fundraising route if it wasn't going to be in Heritage. And then I saw the job at Gloucester, which was the development manager applied for it never thinking I'd get it and and fortunately I, I did so um it was 18 months at the house so what was the first job at Gloucester that you did um it was development manager um with a specific focus on uh individual giving so it was about supporting the cathedral by raising funds through individual donors and givers to support music and fabric kind of specifically. That's what it was on paper, but it wasn't really <laughs> like that in reality. But it was, a, it was a great role. And within three months of being here, having said at the start, I don't think I'll be there for that long because I'm not sure I want to stay in a cathedral. I knew that it was just exactly where I needed and wanted to be. That's really interesting. So can you pinpoint what, what it was about that? Was it the, the actual team or the building or combination of those things? It could, a combination of those things. I think, so I, um, I arrived just before our former dean, Dean Stephen, arrived. And, and he came with a really crystal clear vision about what he wanted and was really energising and empowering. It, there was a lot of responsibility given to staff in a, in a really supportive but empowering way that you know that the, no micromanaging it was very much a case of we want you to get on with this and we trust you to do it and that was so inspiring and that's what I'd really wanted you know and I think from a personal level Ix had given me such a great foundation and then coupled with the experience that 
the Harris of you know practical eighteen months working in a museum. I, I think cathedrals were probably about ten years behind um, museums and and heritage sites, should we say, in terms of um, understanding how to be a good heritage destination and attraction. Right. Um, I think it's fair to say that, uh, and I think that the network would probably say the same. But because of my experience, I think I felt I could offer quite a lot because at that time, there weren't necessarily the people working here with that knowledge or experience. So I, I kind of found an, an, a niche where I could, I knew I could support the organisation because I had a bit. <laughs> I didn't have lots, but I had a bit. Um, and, and quite soon I was asked to coordinate a, um, a six million pound lottery development project called Project Pilgrim, which, as I mentioned earlier, which was really about helping the cathedral to develop into that world-class heritage destination. That was the ambition, uh, as well as kind of supporting local spiritual economic regeneration and heritage regeneration. So to, to have that opportunity, which was terrifying at the time. Um, that's, that's a big step up, isn't it? Yeah, it, it was a big step up, but I'd been involved a little bit in at the Harris, they'd done a, um, a project to refurb one of the exhibition spaces. So I, and because of, I'd done my placement at the lottery fund as well at Ix, which was great. And so I, I, I knew how the then HLF worked, which was, which was good. And I think I taught the lingo, like I understood the heritage terminology, which was a big challenge for the organisation here because there, there were people who were terrified about becoming a museum or just a heritage destination uh, as opposed to a, a place of worship. So that we went on a, a kind of a journey together, learning um, lots and lots, um, but I wouldn't change it. It was, it was fantastic. And the, the best way to grow is to feel uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was amazing. So, well, some, some people feel more comfortable with being uncomfortable than others. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fair way to say it. Some people make a, a habit out of making themselves feel uncomfortable throughout their, their careers in order to kind of move to the next stage. Um, but that, that, sounds, that sounds like a big project. It was, but we had, you know, we had amazing people. Like we had such a, and my role was very much about helping to provide a, a framework, if you like, to, to scope and develop the project and then to raise the money to do it, including like coordinating the, the round one lottery fund application. And we had an amazing team here. So, uh, you know, I was, I was very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. And, and then we were able, after getting the round one, to bring in a proper project manager who knew what they would do, because there's no way I could have done that. Uh, and other, you know, great people to, to actually take the project on and, and make it a reality. Um, so, and that's the great thing about the development kind of role is that your your bit is that first bit where you're helping to shape it, scope it, yeah, and yeah. define what it's going to look like, and then raise the money to do it. Yeah, you don't have to do it because that's the hard bit. <laughs> so, so what happened after that? What what happened when you'd done that first round and appointed somebody else? Did you move on to a different role there? Anne, who's who was the project manager at the time, who we appointed, who is the best colleague ever. She and I worked very closely, as you'd expect. It wasn't just a case of, okay, you get on with it now, because we're not that kind of organisation. Um, so I, I supported, the, particularly leading on the, the fundraising development aspects, 
but also the, the comms. So I, I, around that stage, I became development and communications manager. So I took on the comms and marketing team as part of my remit, which was, again, scary because my background wasn't in comms or marketing. But I think with development and comms, you know, often work closely together. Um, and there's lots of aligning kind of work streams and priorities. So it, it felt relatively natural albeit you know a little bit scary because I, I didn't really know what I was doing but <laughs> well it's kind of kind of interesting you're kind of doing the rounds here on on a lot of the key roles that give you a really solid understanding of how organized function in the face of quite serious challenges you know you're, you're starting to sound like a manager so did you purposefully move into that area or is it just something that came up um I, I think it was a case of I like saying yes, and at that stage in your career, I think it's so important to say yes, because that's how you get opportunities and that's how you can show what you can do. So I think I I was always keen to support and being in development, that's part of your role anyway, as you said. So you're you're working with stonemasons, you're working with the architect, you're working with the project manager, the musicians, because you're trying to raise money to help them do what they do. Um, So you need to understand how they work, what they need, and that gives you a really good understanding of every role within the organisation and then the organisation generally. So, yeah, I think because I wanted to say yes and said yes to things, people kept giving me things to do <laughs> and I was happy to do them. Um, had had you my, been yeah. contributing towards the conversations that were happening around, you know, marketing and comms as part of the that that previous work that you'd done around the first stage of the lottery funding yeah so we you know we developed a um a a detailed comms plan for all of that there were some quite contentious elements to the project um not contentious but for the for the organization at the time as i mentioned there were people who were understandably worried about how this would change yeah how it would change things but also there were things like we got rid of the car park and did a lovely landscaping project right outside the cathedral. So it had a, a fitting setting as opposed to yeah. a concrete car park. But you wouldn't believe the grief yeah. that there was because people didn't want to have their, their car parking taken away. And some of that was kind of understandable, you know, if you're coming in to volunteer or um, to worship. But we had to do some quite detailed work with lots of different audiences. You know, cathedrals have an incredibly complex audience profile. So doing that piece of work really helped me understand, okay, this is how we can approach comms in a strategic kind of way, Yeah, if that makes sense. It does, yeah, yeah, yeah. So how long were you doing that for? So I think I did that for maybe three years and then I was promoted to head of development communications with a kind of bigger team. We invested in and really built those teams up because because we were doing more in all kinds of areas. So there was a need for for greater capacity and resource. So that was the kind of next step. Was that a significant step up at that point? I don't think it was a a significant step up in terms of the development work, but I think stepping into a a head of department role with the kind of wider responsibility for supporting the cathedral more generally as a member of the kind of senior leadership team, that was definitely a step up um, in the sense that you are you're, you're carrying more responsibility. You're, um, the work to actually drive the cathedral's business plan um, and shape strategic priorities 
making sure that the chapter our board is being informed of everything they they need to be doing um, or aware of, I should say. That that was definitely a shift from from being a manager where you're you're responsible for your function and you're aware of what's going on around, but you're not necessarily responsible for it or helping others to um, deliver it. If that makes sense. No, it does. It does make sense. It does. So how long did you do that role for? Um, so I did that role up until I think it was December 21. So that's all over the pandemic period. Yes, which was like it was for everyone, pretty hideous. Yeah. <laughs> what, what unique impacts did that have on the cathedral as a venue and as, and as a team? Uh, it, was, it was brutal. I, I think it was particularly hard for clergy colleagues because for the first time, I think, since the Black Death, we closed the doors um, of the cathedral, you know, and were shut to the point where clergy couldn't even go in to say morning prayer, which was really hard on them. It was very hard on our worshipping community, as you'd expect, you know, not being able to attend services. And, and we set up live streaming and we got that up and running relatively quickly, you know, on a mobile phone at first. And then um, we kind of upgraded as time went on. But, but that, was, that was hugely hard. Um, it was extremely tough on our visitor experience team when we were going through the different phases of being able to reopen in, in certain ways, constantly um, having to change our approach based on government guidelines, which seem to change on a weekly basis. That was very intense. And then, and just helping just staff generally to be able to do their jobs, you know. We weren't set up to, to work remotely on a kind of semi-permanent basis because we're a cathedral, typically people are on site. That's the nature of the work. So that, that was a, a big shift. But for, for a number of our staff who were furloughed, that was really hard. They weren't able to come into work dealing with different pressures um, and frustrations. So yeah, it was, it was tough on everybody. Yeah, yeah. I, I think one thing that we found particularly challenging was communicating effectively to to staff who were having to work and and staff who were furloughed and and keeping everybody together and engaged um, uh, and feeling like the cathedral was going in the right direction and was managing things well um, and that they still felt part of it because there's obviously a disconnect. It must have been quite exhausting for you to have worked all the way through. I think you said that you, you changed job, would you say, end of 2021? Yes. Um, so that's when um, I became Deputy Chief Operating Officer. Um, and that was partly because of the change we knew was coming with um, the Dean leaving and some of our senior clergy retiring and, and other changes. But also we, um, the Cathedral Network has been going through something um, called the Cathedral's Measure, which is effectively uh, a change in governance in the sense that all cathedrals now um, have to register with the Charities Commission, whereas previously the Church Commissioners were our kind of go-to for compliance, whereas now it's Charity Commission as well. So we've been charities but not registered with the Charity Commission. And then to go through that, there's just a, a huge amount of work involved in that process, making sure that policies are up to date, updating constitutions. There's a lot of recruitment of trustees and advisory bodies. And it's a big kind of shift in mindset for our chapter, our board as well, because 
they become trustees, or, or they have now, almost overnight in the sense that they kind of were trustees, but now it comes with all of the responsibilities that a charity trustees have. So that was a huge process, which Emily, our chief operating officer, was leading on. And the organisation felt that she needed a deputy to support that work, but also to, to pick up other bits that she wasn't able to do um, with her focus on that. Um, so that's from November 2021. Yeah, November. I think I started in January 22 in that role. Um, so it was right. end, end of December, January. Yeah. OK. And then w- what happened after that? That's when uh, all of the change happened in that year period. So I don't think Emily would mind me saying this, but we were having a a kind of one-to-one and it was just after our interim dean, um, who is now Dean of Norwich, Andrew Braddock, who's an absolutely great guy, who did an amazing job stepping in as interim dean after Dean Stephen left, lots of deans. Um, But our interim dean, who was supposed to be with us for a year, then got offered the job at Norwich. Um, so um, we found out he was leaving uh, and Emily and I were talking and I said, you know, the last thing we need now is for you to leave. And she kind of looked at me and was like, hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and that's when I discovered that she has applied for the job at St Paul's, uh, you know, absolutely dream job. Um, it, it was an interesting moment. Um, <laughs> the obvious next step was, was for me to step in as acting COO just during a period of all of this change. Um, hopefully uh, to provide some continuity and just kind of steer us through a tricky period, hence what I'm doing now. So has there been any significant change between that previous role and, and, and the one that you're doing now? Is it just that you're kind of doing both of them together? Um, yeah, well, the book stops with me um, in a way. I mean, so yeah, I don't have Emily as my kind of buffer. fallback. There's no buffer <laughs> or parachute. Um, so... You know, but I'm very fortunate to have have learned from the best. Like I can't, I've been so lucky throughout my career to date to have amazing mentors, and and Emily was and still is one of those. So I I got to see how she operated, see everything that she did, and the way she handled things, um, shadow, and so I you know I couldn't have had a better um, opportunity to learn how to do what she did. But, you know, now I've got to make sure that I'm looking after people properly, that everyone feels empowered, informed, and that I'm supporting our dean ultimately as as the kind of leader of the organisation to make sure that he's getting what he needs and is being enabled to be the dean um, and that our board is being supported and enabled to be an amazing board of trustees, which they are. So what have you got coming up? What What's what's happening in the next few months and next year? Um, so we, as I said, we, we've just installed our new dean um, who's been in post a month as of yesterday, um, which has just given everybody a boost. And um, so that we're still kind of doing onboarding stuff and, and we brought in three other new trustees, recently appointed a new head of fabric and property, which has taken a load off me, which is great. Um, and Ailey, she's fantastic. So there's lots of recruitment and onboarding, and that will continue throughout the year. We're bringing in a new canon presenter who looks after the kind of worshipping side of the cathedral and the music in the autumn. This summer, we've got Three Choirs Festival, which is the oldest music festival in the world, which we host every three years, um, which is a, a really big deal. 
uh, and we're really excited about. We've got a big light show in October, um, you know, and then we'll be into Christmas and, and everything else. So the, the show continues. It's amazing how resilient our team is, that the fact that they can just churn out extremely high quality activities and events day after day, but also in amongst so much change. There's been lots of strategic planning with shaping a new people strategy, uh, net zero plan, all kinds of kind of um, bigger pieces of work which will shape our future for the next four or five years. It's exciting. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time, dear. I really appreciate it. And it sounds like you've got a huge amount on at the moment. <laughs> well, I think we all do. And, and, and thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. And I, I hope it you know, was a little bit useful. But um, it's been great to be, to be part of this and to, to chat with you again. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. 